0: The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. Well, good morning. Welcome to church. Glad you're here and uh, excited to get into God's Word together with you this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, while you find your place there, grab your Bible and let's uh, meet there. Let me uh, welcome you that uh, are with us for the first time. If you're a guest, thanks for coming. Uh, This is not a small thing on us, that you came to visit with us and worship with us. And I hope that this is not your last time, but you'll come again. And we're honored to have you. My name is Andrew, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here at Life. And uh, I get the honor of opening God's Word with you this morning. And so welcome. Thanks for coming. Those of you viewing online, welcome joining us there. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We trust that you'll be able to come with us again in person soon. And uh, wherever you are, whatever reason that might be, Uh, But we uh, obviously around here have a desire to lift up the name of Jesus. I hope that you share that desire. Amen? Uh, We exalt thee. That's our heart. This is not about me. It's not about us. It's about the one who made this place possible, that gives us the life that we have and the hope of eternity that we enjoy. It's the name of Jesus Christ, who is worthy of his name, and he is worthy to be called Jesus, which is Savior He is our Savior. He is the only Savior we ever could have that actually saves us from anything, and we exalt Him. We exalt Him because His name deserves to be exalted and forever lifted high. I mean, the song chain that we sang this morning, and we spoke to ourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as we are told to, encouraging our hearts, lifting up doctrine, encouraging hopefully uh, you through what you are going through. And today we're going to continue with our series that we started last week, that we've entitled Jesus Is. Jesus Is, as we lead up to Easter. Now listen, I'm saying about the resurrection, and you know this, I think, but if you don't, let me remind you, we celebrate the resurrection not just one day out of the year, but we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior every Sunday when we gather, and really every day that we live in our life with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate that he is alive. It's not a one-day holiday, it is a lifestyle Of worship that we have and so today we are reminding ourselves of who he is we're reminding ourselves last week that he is the son of God Jesus is God 100 percent deity he is the son of God and today we're going to talk about the fact that he is and he calls himself the son of man and we're going to try to understand what God has for us preserved for us in Hebrews chapter 2 who's the most famous person you've ever met That'd be a, that's a fun icebreaker, isn't it? It might be kind of fun. We won't do it today because we'll be here forever, but just to kind of hear some of the stories about who the most famous person you ever met was. Fun. I would have to say, now don't judge me for this, but the most famous person I think I've ever met is Dennis Rodman. Like, I'm not sure whether that was an honor or uh, God was not pleased with me that day uh and dennis if you're watching uh nice meeting you buddy um we're not buddies by the way but we were in california and we literally we talked had a conversation i asked him what color his hair was and that's the only thing i could think of what do you ask a guy like dennis rodman hey what color's your hair and uh, he said it had polka dots in it or something like that and if you don't know who dennis rodman is then uh google him after you google the bubble up from last week google dennis rodman this week and uh, you'll be blessed by it for sure Whenever I'm around people who have reached a level of fame and notoriety, Dennis Rodman or others like that, for some reason, I'm always shocked to realize that they are just humans. That they literally look like a person and walk like a person. I always love it when I'm almost as tall as these persons because I imagine that they're like 20 feet tall and they float around. I mean, that's almost this this almost media-driven mystique about the people who reach these levels of fame, we're shocked by the fact that we can totally relate with them. Like they put their pants one leg on at a time and their shirts button up the same way. They, they, don't, they don't just live in total uh, beauty or total uh, put-togetherness all the time. They're humans like you and like me. They have emotions, they have angers and frustrations and joys and happinesses, They mess up and they fail and they do dumb things and they do great things and all of that. They're just humans. They're just humans. Now, I think had we been around in Jesus's day, literally walking through the streets of Jerusalem or Galilee or in Judea, and had we met him, the person, we would have been shocked at how much of a normal man he was. Now, I don't say that disrespectfully or even attempting to take away from who he is, but the reality is that that is true. He was a man who was born, who got hungry, who slept, who uh, got tired, who died. He was a man in the flesh. And I don't know that if we met him, we would have been shocked by his presence, I think we see that oozing from the story in the gospels. For instance, when he was, uh, Pontius Pilate was, uh, he was before Pontius Pilate and uh, Pilate looked at him and said, you are the king of the Jews, this guy? Just a normal guy. And the reason that that is true is because Jesus was a man. He was a man, fully 100% human, while at the same time, Jesus is God. Theologically, if you want a big word, we call this the hypostatic union. The fact that in the flesh, Jesus was 100% man and at the same time, 100% God. Now, how we see this played out for us in scriptures, oftentimes when Jesus referred to himself as the son of man. In fact, 88 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. So here we have the reality that the Son of God, deity, is also the Son of Man, humanity. In fact, this is the primary way that Jesus refers to himself, the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man captures a lot of things that we could say about who Jesus was, but one of those things is that it is a title of humanity, that he is human. So so understand this with me. He has two natures, divine nature that he shares equally and eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit and the human nature that he assumed in his incarnation, in becoming flesh. Now, you need to know this as maybe unexciting or thrilling as it may be. Just know Jesus being fully man is a central truth to Christianity. You cannot have the truth of the gospel that is the foundation of Christianity without the reality that Jesus is 100% fully man. And yet to many throughout the ages, this has been a scandalous truth. In fact, according to the Gospel Coalition's essays on the humanity of Christ, they pointed out that from the Gnostics to contemporary Muslims, many have maintained that it is incongruous with the supreme dignity of the deity that he should solely himself with human weakness. Basically, it's incomprehensible to these people that the God of heaven would dirty himself and humble himself and humiliate himself to come down amongst us and dirty himself with the, the dirt of humanity. Modern philosophy, he says, is also scandalized by the notion that only one human in a particular time and place could somehow constitute the definitive revelation of the eternal and immutable God. Modern philosophy, then he says, says this, how can one person who lived 30 some years back in the the, the, the first part of uh, a couple thousand years ago, how could one man definitively reveal the immutable eternal God? We can't fathom that. And even in Christian history, many have sought to diminish the full force of the true humanity of Christ. But the truth is, of Christ's humanity is as significant for the gospel of salvation as the truth of his deity. So we cannot, church... Be a people who elevate Jesus as the one that we worship and the one that we follow and the one that we sing about and the one that we weep about and the one that we live our lives for without understanding, if we understand who Jesus is, understanding him as the son of man. So in Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 is where we want to start. And I want you just to begin, we're not going to read the whole text to start today. We're going to save it as we unpack it over the next couple of minutes. But I want to read the first part of verse 14. And here's what he says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. So let's just connect here. The children are us, humans, that he desires to save. Those are his children. So since the children whom he loves and he desires to come and suffer to save since they are in flesh and blood, that's just a way of describing humanity, since they are humans, then it was right that he himself likewise partook of the same things. So again, listen, without going much further in this, without reading the whole text yet, what what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this, is that he became flesh because the people that he wanted to call into his family were also flesh. Flesh and blood. They were humans. So he became a human. He became a person, God in the flesh. Now, this is all throughout Scripture. This isn't just the only place that this is. In fact, just just for, for a second, think about John 1, verse 14. John 1 starts with saying that the the word was in the beginning is a reference to Jesus. The revelation of God was in the beginning and the word was God. And then John 1, 14 says the word that was in the beginning and was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he did that in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 9 says that in him, that's a reference to Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, I know it's, it's almost one of these truths that we're like, well, how is this reality or how is this possible? And that's the beauty of faith in who Jesus is. He is eternally God, and yet he is also fully physically human being. Now, why? That's the what. But the question we want to answer today is why is that a big deal? Okay, if we believe that by faith, if we believe in a Bible that is preserved for us and and, and kept for us and is our final authority, tells us that Jesus is God and man, then the question that we need to answer is why is that a big deal? Why does that matter? And that is the big idea that I wanna unpack from Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 over the next couple of minutes. And the big idea is simple. Here it is. It'll be on the screen. I encourage you to jot it down. Christ became a man to accomplish what no other man ever could. Christ became a man to accomplish what no other man ever could. You and I are a man, mankind, humans. And when we talk about man, we use that phrase generically as a reference to humans. He became a human to accomplish what no other human ever could. You and I could never accomplish, if we lived a million years, we would never be able to accomplish what Jesus had to come as a man to accomplish. He did it. You and I never could, and nobody ever did. In fact, we had a long history of mankind of failed representatives. Adam represented mankind, and he failed. Abraham represented mankind, and he failed. David represented mankind and he failed. The nation of Israel represented mankind as a a representative and failed. And now in the person of Jesus Christ, he accomplished something that every man in the history of mankind had always failed to accomplish. So the question you're asking now and should be asking is, well, what did Christ accomplish that you and I cannot? Like that's almost the defiant question, isn't it? But we wanna answer that. But the defiant question of man and Humanism is, well, what can he do that I can't? I can do everything by myself, for myself, and in my own strength. And I want you to see that that's not a reality. So let's look at this passage together, and I'm gonna show you them one at a time. There's three of them, three accomplishments that Christ fulfilled in the flesh. Number one, because of Christ's humanity, my enemy's power is eliminated. My enemy's power is Eliminated. So let's read verse 14 again, but let's finish it this time. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that, and anytime you see a that, it's kind of the so that, or in order to. So it's this clause that leads us into the result or the purpose behind him partaking of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy. The one who has the power of death, that is the devil, that he might destroy him. So in summary, these children, is what he's saying, the writer of Hebrews, are physical bodies. So Jesus himself became like them and had the same experiences physically that they had. And he did this so that by dying, he would be able to destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Now, let's talk about that for a second because that's an interesting statement, is it not? Through death, Jesus destroyed the devil who had the power of death. What's going on here? Does the devil have the power of death? No, not really. God is the one who gives life and takes life. The devil is not a competing God that kills at will. He can't. The devil doesn't kill who he wants. He doesn't kill at will. He lives in submission to the actual God, the God of creation and the God of the universe. So what's he talking about here? Well, here's the logic. Man was created to live without dying as the image bearers of God. Did you know that? Your purpose in creation originally in Adam and Eve was to be the image bearers of God on this earth to live without dying. According to Psalm 8, mankind was created to rule with authority over God's creation. Could you imagine, don't you ever wish you could imagine what the world would have been like if, it, if Adam and Eve didn't do what they did? Now, we know we could blame Adam and Eve all we want, but Adam and Eve did what every one of us would have done. That's what Romans teaches us as our representative. But, but the world in which we live would be completely different because be we would be mankind created in the image of God would be living in perfect unison with God as rulers and authorities on this earth. That's what he teaches us. But that was lost, you know, when the devil tempted Adam and Eve and they sinned. And when they sinned, death entered into the world for the first time as judgment on their rebellion and man's authority was legally lost death entered. So the devil did not possess control over death inherently, but he gained his power when he seduced mankind to rebel against God. So because of the fall, the devil operates with some limited power and influence over the world. In fact, 1 John 5, 19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In the gospels, he says twice that Satan is the ruler of this world. Paul identifies Satan as the God of this age and the prince and power of the air. So obviously Satan has power and his power over death is in that he tempts man to sin and reject God and then live under the judgment of God, which is death. So he is, if you will, the one who has the power over death and trying to keep people from coming away and repenting of their sins and turning to God. So through his death, the writer tells us. Jesus destroyed the power of the devil. Let's celebrate that for a second and let's understand what that means. This is awesome. This is gonna be good, okay? I'm gonna warn you. You're gonna gonna like this. He destroyed, which is a word that means he reduced to inactivity or he stripped him of his power. He rendered him powerless. He did away with or he put out of use he put the power of Satan. What was the power of Satan? Well, the power of Satan was to keep people in their sin and under the judgment of death. And what Jesus did is he stripped him of his greatest weapon. That was death. It is, if the power of our enemy is death because of the judgment connected to our sin, then in order to strip him of, the, uh, of his power, the payment for sin and death must be paid. And Jesus died to pay the price of death for you and me so that we no longer live under death, but we have the promise of eternal life. So Satan is no longer the one that holds us down under death, but Jesus came in the flesh to die so that I in the flesh don't have to die and remain under the judgment of God or the control of Satan in sin. That's what he's getting at. How did he do that? Verse 17, Therefore, I know I'm jumping ahead, but look what he says. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. That's you and me. Isn't it cool that Jesus calls us his brothers? He's like our big brother is literally what the reference is there. In every respect, listen, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, what's propitiation? Well, propitiation is atonement paid the price to satisfy the judgment of God. Gracious and mercifully, he became the high priest who offered the blood of the sacrifice, which he also was, as a payment for our sin so that our judgment would be taken off of us. And it was then put on him, removing the, the judgment of death upon us, stripping Satan of his power over us substitutionary atonement i try to summarize it in as simple as i can you deserved to die he died for you because he became a man like you and when you connect with him by faith his death speaks on your behalf and no longer is the devil able to hold you down in sinful judgment or death because he took your place on the cross listen it took a man to do that and that man was jesus christ no other man could do that for you. you listen, let me, let, me, let me rephrase that maybe. You can do it for yourself. Did you know that you can pay for your own sin? It's just gonna take you an eternity to do it. An eternity in judgment separated from God in what Revelation calls the second death. You can do it. It'll take you forever. But Jesus Christ did it as a man for you so that you are no longer under the judgment of death. He did that which no other man could ever do. Let me read a verse to you that's, I think, pretty fun on this part. Colossians 2.15 says this, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Get that. Don't, don't let that be lost on you. He disarmed the rulers and authorities of their power. He took their swords from them. He took their sticks and beat them with their own sticks, if you will. He shamed them openly, triumphing over them in him and in his body, in the flesh. They were made to look foolish on the battlefield against Jesus. My son is, uh, playing little league right now. And, uh, in an incredibly humorous twist, much to my dismay, he's on the Dodgers. <laughs> Can you believe that? Like I come here all arrogantly bashing the Dodgers as the new pastor of life, and about a month later, my son is on the Dodgers. <laughs> so tell me God isn't laughing right now at that situation. Now uh, last week, he learned what the mercy rule is. Guess know what the mercy rule is? If you're losing by 10 after three innings, they don't want you to have to be shamed any longer. So they just say, oh, that's it. We're done. And uh, he was mercy ruled. And he's like, what's that? And I'm like, well, buddy, it's when you lose so bad that people feel bad for you. (laughs) Like, I'm like not compassionate at this at all because I'm like, bro, you need to get better. This is embarrassing, right? And he's like, that was embarrassing. I didn't like that. It's the mercy rule. I don't want to be mercy ruled. He told somebody in the grocery store the other day we were mercy ruled and he put his head down he was frustrated he was ashamed because he has to wear a dodger uniform and be mercy ruled which listen I'm i'm torn here because anytime the dodgers are mercy ruled that's a good thing except in this case it's a bad thing what happened was this the spring valley little league dodgers were put to open shame by being triumphed over get that Listen, Jesus humiliated the enemy on the battlefield when he took my place on the cross and died for me. And Satan, who thought he had won, he thought he had had this soul and that I was gonna spend eternity in judgment for my sin. He thought he had me. But when Jesus died for me and saved me, the devil was put to shame because the man, Jesus Christ, took my place on the cross. My enemy's power is eliminated, he's gone. You can have that, brothers, sisters. You can have that reality come to bear in your life where you live in freedom and victory and honor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you don't know that kind of victory, you can. I know you sit here and think this seems so far-fetched, and I'm telling you, it can seem that way. But When the Holy Spirit comes in and turns some light bulbs on and helps you and confirms you that this is truth, then you run to it by faith and throw yourself at the mercy of this kind of a savior who died for you, defeating your enemy and stripping him of his power. Come to Jesus. He's the only one who can do what no other man can ever do. And he alone is worthy of his name, Jesus. Number one, because of Christ's humanity, my enemy's power is eliminated. Number two, because of Christ's humanity, my fear's dominance is faded. In verse 15, we get a second accomplishment by Jesus becoming a man. Look at verse 15. So he came to destroy the one who has the power of death and then verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. (laughs) Jesus became like us and died so that he could free us from the tyranny of fear. Because of sin, let me just, let's let just get weighty for a second. Because of sin, we all are condemned to death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This is a reference to physical death. Adam and Eve were not created to physically die. They sinned, and they then one day physically died. And then they spiritually died in that they were separated from God in relationship. So it's a reference to physical death and spiritual death, and if remained in that spot one day will end in the second death, which is eternal separation from God, according to Revelation. And and, and God warned them that if you were to sin and disobey me and eat of the tree I tell you not to eat of, then you eat of it, you will surely die. Dying you shall die is the idea of that. And and Romans 5, 12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. Death is our reality in this world. It's, It's not enjoyable topic. It's not something we love talking about, but it is. Thomas Schreiner commented on this and he said, death casts a shadow over the entirety of life, hovering like a ghost over every dimension of existence death means that human beings do not reign like we were intended to, but are ruled by a foreign power for they fear their eventual demise that comes inexorably upon them. In every moment of happiness, death is our dark shadow reminding us that our joy is short-lived. Ecclesiastes moaned about this death. When he said, for who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of in his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? James warned that you don't know what tomorrow will bring, but what is your life? It is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Death is feared, is it not? Death is dreaded. Because of the fact that we humans were not created to die. In creation, we were created to live and rule this earth with God and for God. But because of sin, death is now unavoidable and full of unknowns. We don't always know the process of death, nor what happens after death. Sin is the cause of death. And we know that Hebrews teaches us that judgment follows death. Hebrews nine twenty seven, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Just the talk of it makes a thickness fill the room, doesn't it? Death and judgment and fear. Because of the scariness of death, we live in slavery to that fear of death and judgment. Death is like a cruel master who follows us around and constantly brings us back down to reality sure, season's great now, but one day you're going to die. Sure, you have plenty of money right now, but one day you're going to die. Sure, you have a great job right now, but one day you're going to die. Thousands of religions and philosophies have been developed and formed in response to that fear in an attempt to try to answer and fix what happens to us when we die. You can die and become a god of another world. You can die and have many wives. You can die and live in opulent wealth. You can die and Cease to exist. What do you want? Find a philosophy and find a religion that will answer the question for you. Driven by fear of the unknown of death, man has tried to explain it away or fix it. But our text is this. Let's go back to the final authority, which is God's word. Declares, listen, that Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death and from bondage to that fear. Now, we still die, do we not? Of course we do. The death rate has pretty consistently hovered around 100%. Every one of us will die. But uh, uh, but through Christ, we have the hope of resurrection and eternal life, which begins in the already, in the here and now, and one day will be realized in the not yet. Now listen, if death is feared because of the judgment that is to follow, And if the judgment that is to follow is the judgment of our sin, then to deal with the sin here and now would eliminate the judgment and therefore eliminate the fear. So death is not a fear of one day standing before God and being judged for my sins because my sin has already been judged in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, death is not a standing in judgment for my sin, but it is a passing from one existence into eternal spiritual existence with God. That's what he's saying to us. Now listen, he did this by making the propitiation for the sins of the people. According to verse 17, he accomplished the removal of the fear of death by making atonement for our sin in his flesh on the cross being judged for us. Now listen, if you, maybe, maybe you're the person that you ascribe to this idea of my good will outweigh my bad. That's a scary thing to enter into eternity with, isn't it? Like I'm gonna enter in and I'm pretty sure my good outweighed my bad as long as he doesn't know my inner thoughts and my secret life. And if I get there, I'm hoping that one day he will say, Ah, yeah, you, you skirted by. Good job. Listen, that's a scary thing to do or to try to enter into eternity and through death, having my own philosophy and my own way of thinking, hoping that it all works out in the end. Listen, there is a way for you to enter into death with confidence and stability and hope. And that way is to tie yourself off by faith to the one who stood in judgment for you so that when you die, you can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or home with the Lord, or, or you say with Paul in 1 Corinthians that death is swallowed up in victory. Then he says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So if the sting of, sin, of death is sin, and Jesus died for my sin, death no longer should sting like it did before. Its stinger has been removed. I was working at a nursery in Arizona for years, selling plants, not years, but for a few months, trying to planting a church and trying to work a second job to make ends meet, selling plants and trees. And there was a guy there that I walked up on playing with scorpions. I'm like, bro, what is wrong with you? Like, Arizona people are crazy. Like, you're going to go hug a cactus next? I mean, (laughs) what's going on here? First time I didn't realize it, but what he had done is he had caught it and removed the stingers wasn't a big deal anymore. Every time we lifted a plant, we would check for scorpions. But if all of the scorpions in that whole nursery had their stingers removed, we wouldn't fear it anymore. They could become our little pets, my little pet scorpion. Then we fed it to the goldfish in the pond. But that's another story. The sting of the scorpion had been removed. Therefore, the fear of the scorpion had been diminished. The sting of death is removed when Jesus died for my sin by suffering judgment for me. And look, I'm not denying the fact that there is fear that still is associated with death, but I enter into it and face it with confidence and peace and purpose and hope because I trust the one who was judged for me so that when I die, there is not eternal judgment, but union with my father. You see that? It's here and it tells us. So we find joy in that. We find hope in that. We find purpose in that. Let me give you one last one and we're done for time. Because of Christ's humanity, number three, my humanity's weakness has helped. Now, I want you to jump with me to verse 18 and see the last point that Hebrews makes here. Four, because he himself suffered when tempted. Where, where did he do that? He did that in the flesh, he did that as a man. He did that in humanity. Because he did that, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I don't know if you fit into the category of those who are being tempted, but I do. My flesh is tempted And my faith is tempted. Every time I have a chance to give in to the flesh, I am tempted to follow after sin and set up an idol. Every time I go through a trial, I ask God why. And my faith is tempted. And listen, I have the reality of temptation to doubt God or question God or replace God. I am still bearing about in this earth my flesh that tempts me and draws me away and my heart away and to orient my life to something other than God. I am still tempted in these things. And he says, I know what that's like because I too, as a man, went through the same trials and through the same temptations and through the same suffering. Where I even, he even said, My God, why have you forsaken me? Temptation is real, it's common, it never stops ringing our doorbell. It's catastrophic when the process is enacted upon, it ends in death. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13 reminds us that that he is faithful, who in the temptation will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What he's saying to us is this, is that Jesus in the flesh went through temptations. Read about him in the gospels. He suffered and he struggled and he went through the opportunity to sin. And here's the difference though. He didn't sin. He didn't give in to his temptations. He didn't lose his faith. He didn't lose his desire to orient his life towards the will of God. So he says, I know what it's like and I overcame it and I'm willing and capable to help you through your temptation. Now I want you to see this played out for us in one other verse. Look at Hebrews chapter four and look at verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, before we read the next verse, listen, we have this temptation of thinking of God as a God who doesn't doesn't feel what we feel and he's detached. He's kind of like the, uh, the Greek gods that sit up in Olympus and unattached and not really sure all that happens down on earth, but but able to kind of tell us what to do. Listen, Jesus says, I'm not a high priest that is detached from you, but I am a high priest that suffered in every way that you suffer. I know what it's like to go through those things and I pass those without sin so we can come to him with confidence. In fact, that's what verse 16 says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, listen. You are facing real, heavy struggles in life, I know that. I know you're facing temptations to replace God and, and follow after your lusts or sin. I know that. And some of you are going through some real tragedies and trials in life, loss, loss of loved ones. Every time I sit at the bedside of somebody who's dying, I feel that weight again. And I wonder, how can this be? God, what is going on here? And what's the situation here? And help me understand how you get glory from this. And I am tempted to question and doubt. And, and, and my faith is is tried in that. And I know this that I'm not alone, humanly speaking. Not only do you and I all go through that, we have a savior who is touched with those weaknesses as well and felt them and endured through them. So I can go to him in prayer and I can say, Jesus, I know you've been through this. I know you faced this. I know you went through a similar thing. And I have no idea in my finite mind how to handle this, but you passed this test. What's the answer key? What's the way? Give me the strength, give me the help. Fill me with your spirit. Help me find strength to strengthen my faith and strengthen my resolve to obey you and follow you and depend on you in the midst of this tragedy and this trial and this temptation that I'm going through. Listen, you may be facing it, but the answer to facing the trials and the temptations is not white-knuckled Christianity. It's not hold on tighter, grip it tighter, try harder. It's, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to the one who does. I'm going to the throne of grace. When, when it's coming, I'm going to his knees, to my knees, to his throne, and I'm crying out to the one who actually can help me through this. You see that? That's what he's trying to get at here is he's trying to say, don't, don't miss this. You have somebody who can help you in the trials and temptations you are going through because he is a man who understood what it's like to be a man, yet without sin. Christ became a man, to accomplish what no other man ever could. I think one of the greatest honors of my life is to be a pastor. I love it. It's one of those, one of those, what one man called blessed bondages. Every Sunday's coming and I have to be here, but I love it every day. I love every moment of it. And I wish there were ways that I could do more for you. But I just want you to know, I and no other person on the pastoral team and no staff member, no, no other man can ever help you by eliminating your enemy's power. I can't do it. I'm, I'm susceptible to my in, the enemy's power just like you are. I can't take your place in death. I can't do it. I, I can't be the one who does. I cannot f- help the dominance of fear to fade out of your life. I can give you scripture when you're facing death, and I can help you, and I can pray with you, and I can hold your hand, and I can weep with you, and I can do all of that. But there's only one person, there's only one man who can actually help you overcome your fear of death. It's not me. It's not me. And listen, I can't help you in your temptations and your weaknesses. I can come alongside of you, I can cheer you on, I can hold your hand, I can put my arm around you, but you gotta know something. I'm facing similar temptations, I'm facing similar trials. We're going through this together, and actually, I haven't passed them all. There's only one man who has done that, though. And so in your desperate need for help, go to the one who can actually help you. His name's Jesus. He's the Son of God who became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. That's who we celebrate. Amen? Amen. Let me give you three quick questions. I'm going to rapid-fire these to you. They're learning to live. They're they're applicational questions that I want you to ask that I would encourage you to engage with before we close out our time together this morning. Number one, ask yourself this What am I trying to accomplish that has already been accomplished? You see, listen, what I mean by this is that he robbed the enemy of his power. He defeated Satan, he defeated death, he defeated sin. He paid the price for your sin. So if you are not connected to Jesus by faith, accepting and trusting in him, then you are probably trying to accomplish something you can't. You do not have the power to accomplish it. In fact, it's already been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. So often people are just too proud to come to the one who accomplished it, failing to realize that he can, trying to attempt accomplishing it themselves. So if there's something in your salvation that you are trying to accomplish that has already been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ, then come to the one who's accomplished it. Come to the one who actually can because you never will. If it takes you all of eternity in in judgment, you never will fully pay the price for, for atonement. So what am I trying to accomplish that has already been accomplished? Number two, who do I hang with that reminds me of these truths? These are truths that you need to rehearse and be reminded of again and again and again. You don't need humanistic philosophies that tell you you can do this, you cannot do this. You don't need another religion to tell you there's another way, you don't need that. You don't need something to take your mind off of this. You need to regularly engage with the realities that the son of God became a son of man to die for you, to deliver you from death and take away fear and sympathize with your weaknesses. And you need people in your life that remind you of that and push you back to him. And a church family or Christian family is a great place to start. So answer that question honestly and then lean into who those people are that remind you of these truths. Last question is this, who in my life needs to meet the Son of Man? There's a, there's a world full of 7.8 billion people, a ton of which have never met the Jesus that saves. And there might be a few people in your circle of influence that you can introduce to the human Savior, the Son of Man. And may we be faithful in representing our Savior and sharing his love and his death with those around us. Amen? Christ became a man to accomplish what no other man ever could. Let's pray. Father, it's the greatest, it's the greatest act of love. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that you loved us and sent your son to die for us. The greatest act of love. Displaying your love for us, even in that while we were still sinners, Christ became flesh and died for us. The greatest display of grace and the greatest act of love we've ever seen. Thank you. And may the reality of that and the truth of that not be something that we lose the wonder of. May it not be something that we grow so accustomed to because we grew up in Sunday school or we go to church and we talk about it. But may it be a truth that comes to bear on our lives so that we live in victory over our enemy. We we live in freedom from our fear and we live helped in our trials and our temptations because somebody knows what it's like to be in them. Help us, Father. If there's somebody in this room that doesn't know Christ as their savior, the one who paid the price for their sin, may they come to know Jesus today and be forever saved and forever changed. Bless us now as we end this service for your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen.